today on the NFL Films Podcast. We'll explore the timeline, the helmet catch, the newest installment of the documentary series that remembers the great moments in NFL history. A double dip, Pauly. We're going to talk to Ken Rogers as well about the new 30 for 30, the two bills. A giant, giant, did you hear the big G in that one? Giant NFL Films podcast today, folks. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Welcome aboard. Double decker, Pauly. This could be our biggest episode ever. Today, Keith, you were surrounded by three New York football giant fans, myself, and of course, for this segment, Ryan Kelly and Steve Lucatorto, the co-producers of the timeline, the helmet catch in the Rooney Mara balance of the universe, my friend. Today, it's all Mara. So welcome to this show. I hope you can enjoy the three of us in the what I call the SMH episode, because that's what I was doing the whole time I watched the helmet catch. I don't know if you guys have uh, gotten over it yet, but I don't know if I ever will. So welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm excited. I watched the film last night, The Helmet Catch, with my seven-year-old son, Max, and he was riveted to the whole thing. Unfortunately, we were watching a rough cut, and so we he heard uh, a couple of F-bombs that had not yet been bleeped out. Sorry. We should start there, because this is a film that... Um, and. We're going to get a call in a few minutes from the star of the film, David Tyree. But there are a lot of ways that you guys could have gone with this story to tell this story. And for instance, you could have gone with the Boston, with the New England perspective. And here's a taste of that. It's worse than the Bucky Dent home run in 1978 that gave the Yankees the playoff game win. Tyree will always be a strand in the DNA for this Patriots franchise. So, David. Tyree is is Bucky dent in a helmet. Travis Green tells me to this day that he has nightmares still. That play is going to be somewhere in the back of my head for the rest of my life. I should have sacked Eli. Should have been my play. Should have been my play. Got to be sacked. No. no, he got out of it. How did he get away from that? How did they fail to sack him? They were held. Holding? holding. No, we didn't block any. The offense line didn't block anybody. I don't know how you can call it. We have a chance to hold. Yeah. <laughs> they should have thrown Sean O'Hara in a paddy wagon after the game for the way that he assaulted Richard Seymour. There's a difference between holding and clutching. Clutching is when you just kind of grab something. And that something that happened to be Seymour's trachea. But no, I didn't hold. So, Tom Curran, did he say that line? Had he said that line somewhere else, or 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 was that fresh for this interview? Uh, I believe it was fresh for the interview. I, when we were thinking about the show almost a year ago, Buki Wilson and Bill Buckner was the first thing that came to mind. We were like, that's sort of there's a parallel there. Two guys from New York and Boston who's whose lives changed forever because of one play. And they're linked to each other now. And they're linked to each other now. And I, we just went in cold, asked him about, you know, hey, is it like Mookie and Buckner? And Asking Curran about it. Yeah, asking Curran, uh, asking Nick Stevens. He was the Patriots fan in the show, comedian. He's done interviews for us for other shows, and he's, he's a funny guy. 
has a good take on things. And but Tom Curran, the uh, Boston former Boston uh, newspaper man who now works um, in, for NBC, right. uh, up in New England, said he gave the great line there that that you know comparing him to, to David Tyree to Bucky Dent, and David Tyree ultimately is the person. Um, you chose to tell this story about most. Why did you make that decision? Well, we, um, you know, he was willing, first of all. He was willing to to give us lots of access and to basically, you know, have him do whatever, you know, we asked him to do, which he was great about. I mean, hey, David, can you walk through Times Square and go unrecognized? Yep, sure. And um, we decided that instead of a show where you saw lots of, you know, talking heads, what if David Tyree goes and tries to, you know, glean or divine the meaning of the helmet catch uh, with the people who, you know, helped make it happen, his friends, his teammates, his coach. So we had David Tyree um, go and basically interview Eli Manning, Michael Strahan, and Tom Coughlin and, um, you know, just doing research on David Tyree's life he has a very fascinating life story and the way he tells it is very authentic. And at that point, you know, you make these films and there's a point at which, you know, up until that point, you kind of shape the way you want the film to be. And then you get to that point where the film shapes itself. And once David Tyree was on board and, you know, once we sort of integrated his backstory into this film, that's when the film started telling us what it was going to be. So it became a very David Tyree Giants centric show. And, you know, the Boston perspective, while I think still represented in the film, got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, I've been thinking about this all year as we've been making this film. There's that 07 Patriots team. There's, you know, there's a great film about them that's going to be made someday. You know, there's still sort of that reckoning that's out there. You said that he was willing, you know, and, and so, it's great that when someone's willing to, to go and do it, you know, when you watch the film, you'll see that there's quite a few shoots with David Tyree. This was not as simple as David sit down and do a soul-bearing interview. He did multiple shoots with you guys. Um, so it's one thing to be willing. It's another to have, as, as you said, Ryan, like enough story to be the backbone of a, of a full documentary. And, and I think that that might be the, the revelation and the, and, this, and, the, and the real victory of this film is to discover this guy who, whose career was made by this one moment, but whose life certainly had so much more to it. And this moment became a launching point for, for you know, a validation for how far he'd come, but, but also a launching point for who he is now. And, you know, the, his story has so much to do with his faith. And, you know, it's kind of a, a tricky subject around here, religion. Uh, you know, it can really easily be not handled well. And what David made easy for us is being really authentic and open and clear about the nature of how he came to his faith and what it means to him and how that's tied into the helmet catch. Uh, for him. Well, that's an interesting th point you make because we often struggle not 
not because anyone is one religion or another, but but as storytellers and filmmakers, we, you just know, you know, if you're you, going to get the eye roll or the oh right. here it comes. Reli- but... Yeah, religion has a different place in our world now. So so we we often just avoid it as filmmakers in our in, in our in our stories, even when someone is very religious and and wants to give you. Um, religious answers to questions in interviews, we tend to we tend to leave that stuff out of our films for better or worse. We didn't want to tone it down, and but he he wasn't in your face with it. He has a good handle and perspective on it, and he even in his interview, the portions maybe that we didn't use, he understands that, in his words, that religion does get marginalized in a locker room. Guys do have their opinions about it. Some don't want to hear it, and I think. When we did the interview, we didn't want him to tone it down. We wanted his real perspective from where he's coming from because it is it is a part of the story. When you watch the film, it's genuine. It's not something that was, I don't think it was made up. It, he truly believes that God intervened in that moment. So you went into this knowing, you know, you know his story has this religious thread to it. Mm-hmm. And you guys decided beforehand... We're gonna go in and attack it head on. We're we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna try to minimize this or to or, 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 or present. No, no, I I don't think. I mean, on a certain level, I don't think we had a choice. I mean, given the way he looks at this play, it would be you know, it would be almost dishonest to to tone that back. Right. If you're gonna tell the story, this is the this is it's because the, because that's how be. that's how he sees it. All right. Well, he's calling us now. Let's hear it straight from uh, David Tyree himself. Hello, David. How we doing? Good. This is Paul. I'm with Keith. We're the hosts of the podcast. Thanks for calling in. We're also with Steve and Ryan, who you... uh, you know from the film. Hey, David. Paul Keith, Steve Ryan. Hey, guys. How we doing? Great. How are you? I'm excited, man. I'm doing well, man. So you you got to know these guys pretty well making this film over the last several months. Did you enjoy the process? I did. I did. It was. It was. Uh, they made. They made it. They made it enjoyable. It was obviously, a lot of pieces to it. Um, makes me appreciate you know your craft. <laughs> did, did you, when you first got the call that we were making this film and, and we wanted you to be part of it, did you expect that, that, that it was going to be as extensive as it was? You know, it, it was, I, was, I can't say I expected it, but I would say that it, it, when I looked at the, the layout, it all made sense. I guess that's, it. That's, that's probably the only way I could really shape it. I knew it was no small little thing, but I, you definitely have to appreciate the level of detail. That goes into a process like that. The guys are putting the finishing touches on the Helmet Catch, our episode of the timeline that will premiere uh, on NFL Network. But we wanted to play you a couple of moments for it and get, get your reaction. Here's one with your coach and uh, with your teammate and discussing, uh, you know, the struggles you went through early in your career. You came in and sat down. And, of course, to be honest with you, David, I've sat through a, a, a hundred of these, you know, and some... Instinctively, uh, I felt like we really needed to eliminate this player. You were contrite. I thought you were very sincere, and you were a hometown guy. You were playing a couple of miles from where you grew up. Besides that, 
you knew that this was the end of the rope. I mean, if this was not going to work here and this uh, reputation preceded you anyplace else, there, was, there probably was going to be no chance. So there was some risk involved, mm -hmm. but I knew, I thought I knew exactly how I could motivate and inspire and what I could get out of you in return. You owned up to it. And I think there's an appreciation for making a mistake and getting yourself in a situation that you know better. There you go. You know better. You know your mom didn't raise you like that, boy. <laughs> but to man up and say, yeah, you know what? I did it. I made a mistake. I put myself in a bad situation. I won't do it again. That's right. And you did that. And I think as a, from a human being standpoint, also from a teammate standpoint, when you care about somebody, that's what you want to see. So, David, one of the things we love about this show is, is obviously the role, you, the central role you play in it and we, how we get to meet you. But we really get to meet your teammates, your coach, and we see the we get a lot of insight into how sort of a team takes care of each other uh, inside the locker room in a scene like this. If you could just kind of explain how, whether it was Michael or Plexico or, or Coach Coughlin, how those guys were there for you in that difficult moment. You know, the... Um... The interesting dynamic of it all is, is, is much as it was very well captured how Christ and my, you know, my transformation was really the centerpiece of it all. And because I knew the change was real, I felt as if the contrition was, was real and, and necessary. Um, the gratitude came in that, that I'd never really uh, knew at that capacity for, for people. For, for people's forbearance, understanding, willingness. So um, now when you're interacting with these people, you never know what the reaction is going to be. And so I never expected anything or much. So everything was really a surplus when you get that positive response. And, and that's typical, meaning like as far as in a family, no one's expecting anybody to be perfect, but um, there's always a great measure of support. And, you know, and, and, and I experienced that at, at the highest levels, uh, especially from Coach Coughlin with that reputation that he had coming in. Um, but, but teammates, you know, we're all kind of, there's a certain measure of, um, you know, growing pains that I've always appreciated about the sport that has made room for. And uh, you're talking about young men who don't really know how to do life well. And I exemplified that to a great degree. So, um, you know, I can't I can't speak volumes enough to, everybody being willing to be a part of my process. It was interesting to see your relationships with Coach Coughlin, with Michael Strahan, who we just heard from in that clip, as well as Eli Manning in this film. It, it, it does a really good way. Pairing you with those guys in different scenes and having you interact the way you do so honestly and openly really gave us a glimpse into the kind of relationships that develop uh, on a pro football team, as Paul alluded to. And I, I was just wondering if it, doing those shoots, is it challenging to have those conversations on camera and go back to these moments in your life? Or was it very natural once you were together, even though the cameras were rolling? Well, for me, it's very natural. Um, you know, every time I get a chance to talk about my former life, good, bad, and indifferent, it's, it's an opportunity to be transparent. I feel that um, there's... There's the necessity of that. I have no shame about the person that I once was because I'm no longer that person in regard to the negative aspects. So, you know, the interesting thing for me or the interesting experience was how much other people remember, recall, and how, you know, hearing it from them because there's not a, you know, wasn't I, as much as I have great relationships with all, all those people, 
they're not deep, deep relationship. And that was really the, the really neat dynamic for me is just, you know, usually when you're around them, it's good laughs, memories, um, good times. Every now and then you get a chance to hang out with family, but that's rare. So it was really, a, you know, kind of like a, having a conversation with a family member and them telling you things about yourself that you might not have known. David, how has this experience and what is unfolded in this story, whether it's having a bad practice and having to come back on Sunday and play in the Super Bowl, or whether it's having that conversation, that hard conversation with your coach and your teammates, how has that prepared you for what you do now? And kind of just explain for the folks who haven't seen the film yet what your job is. And I'm wondering if there's any examples that that you've now encountered in your new role with the Giants where you've taken that experience and, and it's informed your ability to help others? You know, good question. I think the main thing that I've, that I've learned uh, from my personal experiences and in, in, in living that out through that football team is really ownership. You know, something I really believe deeply in is taking full ownership for your life. And that's a little bit more than responsibility. So you're taking uh, ownership of why something didn't go right. Um, you know, something I learned through football in college was, well, you know what, if if they're not playing me as a wide receiver, then I'm, I'm obviously not outstanding enough to the point where they feel like idiots for not putting me in. And so it taught me to take full ownership for everything that I was or wasn't. And I think, you know, some of the bad bad decisions that I've made along the way, bad choices at whatever cost, bad performances, it was just taking full ownership in a self-aware kind of way that allowed me to grow through the process and get and optimize my experiences and grow. I think that's what life is all about. So it, it 100% translates something that, you know, that kind of perspective, even as a young man, was probably a little bit of a gift um, in regard to, you know, at least having an internal focus to seize moments for, for change, growth, and ultimately transformation. You know, I've learned that it's not about the outcome. It's more about who I'm becoming. So that's when I look about, you know, the unfavorable circumstances that led to fruit, it was all about who I was becoming in the process. You've been involved with the NFL now for, what, upwards of 15 years and seen it from so many different perspectives as a, as a player who was almost out of the league uh, having made personal mistakes as as a player who 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 made one of the greatest plays in football history and 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 had a parade in in Manhattan, to where you are now, and I, I'm just curious, has the game changed? Have the players changed? People are always saying, oh, you know, it's not what it used to be. But you've been around long enough now to have a sense of where the league is right now today. Um, and, and curious on your perspective of that. Glad you asked that. It's something I give you know give thought to, and I think the game has, um, and in all honesty, I think the game has grown to be better in many different ways. And along with the growth, the game has obviously garnered a lot more attention. And um, obviously, living in a digital world, um, everybody has an opinion, and everybody has something to say. And there's a lot more negative opinions. And, um, you know, some of it, I would, I would be honest and say that it's unfair or unjust because everybody's opinion in my, you know, from my vantage point doesn't mean it's important, but everything's reportable. And I think that's the biggest change dynamic is everyone has something to say. You know, the damaging part is, you know, the, the cronies <laughs> that, that don't recognize that football is just a microcosm of life. 
you know, and as much as these men on the field, heralded warriors, they're, they're broken men. They're broken young men who are figuring life out. And they've chosen a pathway that, is, that has garnered them a lot of attention. So um, if they only had a little more forbearance on the men that are, that are playing the game, then they can see that as much as there are, there are heroes, um, all, all of our heroes have, have wounds that are healing. So um, I'm always, you know, considering the fact that the standards are never going to change in regard to the opportunity, but uh, there needs to be a, a human element that's attached to, you know, our, our, our views as, as we consider the game moving forward. Talking to David Tyree, the central figure in the timeline, the helmet catch, uh, which is premiering on the NFL Network. Uh, we're going to play another clip for you here, David. And, and as we've been talking about, this film is such a great marriage. I think Ryan and Steve did an awesome job of it really intermingles your personal biography with sort of the biography of a moment in time as it relates to all the people that were involved in it. It really dives deep into that moment. And, and in this clip, it sort of brings us into essentially the, the just before uh, the Super Bowl, kind of a scene that unfolded in real life just before Super Bowl 42 out in Arizona. And it, it's a little bit of this personal backstory and some of the football elements. And I think it's a good example of how this film uh, intermingles the two of them. It definitely paved the way for a lot of repetitions, but it also set the stage for what was probably one of the worst practices in Super Bowl practice week history. <laughs> I think I threw you seven passes that day, and you dropped six on. I think you got like a hitch for four <laughs> yards. It was bad. Was that bad? It was pathetic. The ball was hitting you everywhere a ball could hit you, to the point, if you remember, we started yelling, beat him up, ball! <laughs> Myself, Antonio Pierce, everybody, beat him up, ball! But I remember coming up to you after and said, hey, you're a gamer. Forget about it. And, uh, you know, sure enough, stepped up big. The night before the game in the Super Bowl, we were praying together, you know, just good to pray. I give this prophetic word. David, the Lord's going to quicken your feet. He's going to give you hind's feet like the feet of a deer. And it says the Lord is putting spiritual glue on your hands. God is going to give you the big play. I'm a believer, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I believe that God can speak and however he chooses to. And, and so I believe those words. 11.30 to go in the fourth quarter. Patriots seven, Giants three. Second and three at the New England five-yard line. Tyree wide right, handoff, no oh, play fake, manning the throw to the end zone. Touchdown! David Tyree on the post, and the Giants have the lead with 11.05 to go in the ballgame. And I was like, what? My man who was getting beat up by the ball <laughs> has now caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Oh, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> fantastic. So, David, as a Giants fan, which I am, even without the picture, I get to have a sort of a visceral reaction to that story, remembering it, and the hairs start to stand up in the back of my neck. But, I mean, you lived it. So... Uh, what sort of reaction do you have hearing uh, the recollection of that story? Yeah, it, it, it's like, um, it's almost like, golly, I knew it was bad, but I just didn't realize it was that bad. <laughs> That's the first reaction, but ultimately, you know, I never wavered in confidence uh, in, in regard to my ability to, you know, to seize the moment. And all I could consider was, man, if, I just hope I get the opportunity. And... I think that's been the song of my life. Just, just let me, just, let, just give me an opportunity. And, you know, especially when they called that play on the goal line uh, for the, for the touchdown, to me, that was it. I, that was the height of glory. 
You know, I could have took my ball home and could have wrapped everything up right there, beat the Patriots, and I had one t- t- two catches and one touchdown, and all would have been done fine and well, and uh, written, you know, written a perfect story in my mind and heart. So that's kind of what I think about when I when I consider the 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 whole story. Just like man, it was really it was really that bad to. How could it be this good? There's a bite. There's an interview uh, bite. Actually, I don't. It didn't make the show, but Peter King, in in uh, in his part of the interview, he was talking about it in his mind. In his, it's his theory that, uh, especially given the story of how your practice was um, with the drops, that when Eli throws you the ball um, and you end up catching the touchdown early in the fourth quarter, that if you drop that ball. Chances are Eli might not be coming back to you later in the game um, on third and five. Is, what, what, I just want to get your reaction to that. Do you think there's a relationship between that play that you made, the early touchdown, and instilling Eli with the confidence to knowing when he fla- when you flashed in his eyes down the field that he could throw it back to you? No. <laughs> you know, in, in all honesty, I was only reason why I say no is, you know, I don't think Eli knew who he was throwing the ball to on third and five coming up that <laughs> Coming out that um, that uh, almost sack there, you know, just and I think you know he sees a white jersey down there. And he he looks open for a second, and, and, um, and you're gonna give it a go. That's the only reason why I would say no no connection. But um, ultimately, one thing that I that I always felt certain about was that Eli had confidence in me because the savvy of my game was knowing everything as a receiver. It wasn't that I was obviously so fast, or so swift, or so it was that I knew the detail of the position and I felt like we were always compatible and, and had garnered his his trust anytime I was in the game. So one last question. I, listening to that clip, I'm struck by, you know, here we are. We're recording this a few days before Super Bowl 52 and you had that horrible practice and rebounded and got yourself mentally ready to have the game of your life. So I, I guess... The last question would be, what advice would you give to all those Eagles and Patriots that are getting ready to play in this game or or other anyone who's getting ready to do anything in their life that could be the biggest event they'll ever be a part of and, and to get yourself mentally ready to, to go out and, and to do everything you've trained to do for your whole life? Yeah, you know, I think there's so much to believing in something bigger than yourself. And um, obviously, my something was Jesus Christ. So, you know, I tell them pray. You know, I tell them to have faith beyond the biggest mountain and, and, and lay hold of the promise that they believe is before them. If, you know, to believe that you're, you're created for something bigger than what you're experiencing right now. And I think all actions are hinged on our beliefs. That's a simple reality that's lived out that not many people would like to always acknowledge. No one lives contrary to their beliefs. So, you know, if you believe that you'll you'll be great, you'll prepare like it. And uh, whereas there might not be fruit in every day's preparation, but you'll continue to prepare like it and believe that you're going to be ready to receive that harvest, more or less. So um, pray and believe. All right. Well, David Tyree, thank you for taking a few minutes to join us. And, uh, you know, the guys, Ryan and and, and Steve, did a great job with the film. And and, and we're all grateful from everybody at NFL Films for for your participation in in, in this project. I hope hope you're happy with how it turned out. I'm super thrilled. You know, Ryan, Steve, you guys are rock stars behind there. We can hang out. 
um, after this is all over, but it was it was a tremendous honor to be a part, you know, and I, and I, I consider it that much. I can't say a lot enough. Um, I, I consider all that's come from this on being on the heels of, of you know, Steve Sable making that statement after the Super Bowl. I saying this is the greatest play in Super Bowl history. That's what, what my belief is hedged on because of, you know, the founder of, uh, you know, the, the family founder of this wonderful estate and film. So I'm grateful. Thank you, guys, and let's 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 rock on. Looking forward to a great production. All right, thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. Well, fellas. David Tyree, as we record this, we're still finishing the film, so he had not yet seen the entire thing, but it was great to play him a couple clips, and uh, I, I thought it was a good conversation. It, it, it went in directions that we, we actually would have thought based on our, our conversation beforehand. He's true blue, as Bob Papa says. He's <laughs> true blue. He, you know, he's true to himself. He's... You know, the words he speaks are, are what, you know, how he feels the truth is. And he's just a, you know, a very genuine person. We probably didn't do a good enough job before that call of giving the background of who David Tyree was, you know, prior to that moment, you know, and, 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 and the depths that he sunk to and how close he was to being out of the NFL. Why, why don't you give us a little background on, on his his biography? Yeah, Honestly, we, we probably could have done an entire show just on his background, but, you know, we only had 44 minutes and we had to cover the helmet catch, not David Tyree's entire story. But uh, long story short, he's a, a Jersey guy. He grew up a few minutes from Giant Stadium. He was a Niners fan. That that was was not in the film, but <laughs> he got he got booed by, uh, by Michael Strahan for being a 49ers fan. Uh, but... Grew up in Montclair, East Orange, tough blue-collar neighborhoods. Had sort of a tough upbringing. His mom pretty much raised him and his sisters. Gets involved in high school sports. Becomes really good at football. Gets scholarship offers. But as he's ascending in junior high and early high school, he starts drinking, starts smoking weed on weekends, and continues to do this all through high school. And it gets worse and worse as he gets to to college. He's just drinking until he blacks out, has a lot of problems in school. Uh, His relationships are strained with his his girlfriend and now wife. I believe they had a child and their relationship was on the rocks for a while. Ends up getting drafted by the Giants. Uh, It was Ernie Acorsi, was it not? He was Mm -hmm. the one who they were watching film on him at Syracuse and they said... This is the best special teams guy we have ever seen. And this is after, sorry, Steve, this is after, if you want to draw a line from A to to B, this is is the draft right after the Trey Junkin game. So that spring, and this is something we tried to sort of... The Trey Junkin game being... Being the uh, Giants signed a long-time, long-snapper specialist for their 2002 playoff game in San Francisco... And he had been retired, and his bad snap basically cost the Giants the playoffs. So that following spring, Ernie Accorsi, um, he says we need to revamp the special teams unit. He signs a new long snapper, signs Brian Mitchell, 
uh, from the Eagles to return kicks, and they draft in the sixth round David Tyree, yeah. who's one of the best special teams player in Ernie Accorsi eyes. You know who it is? It was it was Jim Fossil who said that to Accorsi. Okay. From now that I recall. You don't get that often. You don't get people drafting a guy specifically because he's he's a special teams freak. That's pretty rare, especially in the sixth round. That's sort of undrafted free agent territory. Absolutely, yeah. But I think they saw he did have value as a receiver. He did he did do some, some decent things as a receiver in college, but he really was known as a, as a special teams player. But then he... he he continued his his decline into drugs and alcohol. In his words, he was able to hide it in college. It, you know, never cost him really in college. But the NFL, it exposes your character, and it just throughout that 2003 season, his rookie season, um, he just, you know, it was kind of a descent. He was late to practice. In his words, he showed up to late to practice, smelling like a brewery. Just you know, liquor, sweating liquor out of his pores. Um, he's showing up. You know, he's showing up to to schools, telling kids not to do drugs. And then, in his words, he's jumping in his car and lighting up a blunt. And eventually, in that two thousand after the off season after two thousand three, the same off season where the Giants hire Tom Coughlin, uh, Tyree decides uh, to start sm- selling marijuana and. And he gets pulled over and arrested for marijuana possession. And, you know, as you see in the film, he's sitting in a jail cell in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And he calls out to God, basically. And from that moment on, his life was transformed. Um, He still had to face Coach Coughlin. And that's the point at which he very easily could have been out, out of the NFL. I mean, how many stories are like that, that end like that, you know, Coach Coughlin says in the show, he's been through these conversations a hundred times. But, you know, he he connected with Coach Coughlin, he showed contrition, and he, he turned his life around. And starting in 2004, he developed into one of the best special teams players in the league. He made a Pro Bowl as a special teams player. So everyone who said that, you know, David Tyree, who's this guy who made this great play? Well, I mean, he was a Pro Bowler. Yeah. Well, I want to say, Paul, do you, you're a Giant fan. I'm a Giant fan. Do you remember him at all? No. Before he hit it big in the Super Bowl? I mean, I remember his name. I, I, yes. And I, we watch football every week. We watch the Giants religiously. And, I mean, I remember his name, but I don't remember him being – I remember Renee Thompson in the early 90s being a – more, Renee Thompson. I think, more I think, of a special team standout than him. Number but. 21. I think this is more a commentary on the quality of Giant fans I'm sitting with <laughs> than it is David Tyree, the football player. <laughs> I mean, any Steelers fan would, would be fully aware of who the special teams aces were in 2004. And give me a break. The Tyree equivalent in Pittsburgh, of course. Uh, no, I don't remember him to answer your question. When, even when we watched the show, I remember there's a the, you have a clip... Um, of him in practice, he had a different number at the time. Yeah, I found that it was. Um, we were doing "Hey Rookie" in two thousand three. I don't even remember, you know, remember who we were following. "Hey Rookie" being a show we produce annually for ESPN, where we follow several rookies through the draft process and and into training camp at that time. So you know, I'm going through this footage trying to see if there's a glimpse of two, rookie era two thousand three era David Tyree, and and there he is. Um, looking kind of out of it and in a different number. So I thought that was kind of neat. We were following around a, a 
offensive linemen. Offensive linemen, yeah. yeah. So that, that's where that shot came from. And the moment where he's describing smelling like alcohol, sweating right. out the booze. And there, So, yeah, he's at practice, and there's like a, in the distance, there's a huddle break, and he's just sort of meandering around looking kind of half-dazed. And, you know, it, it's a nice shot to pair with him saying, you know, he—, he He's late to practice. He's smelling like a brewery. So getting back to the, the making of the film, though, as, as, as we wrap things up, one of the, the, the neat tricks you pulled off, you're making a film ultimately about David Tyree, but you were able to get some serious star power into it. Yeah, by, we, you know, we tried to get more, but, you know, not everybody wants to talk negative about, a, you know, a play that they can't stand. Yeah, the, like, the Patriots aren't quite ready yet. Right. So, so you were always going to make it a— a giant-centric film, but you found a way creatively to tell the story of this guy in this play, but also include Eli, Strahan, and Coughlin, who are sort of the constellation of stars around which that that championship was built. How did you arrive at that determination? What was the strategy, and, and are you happy with how it landed? Yeah, I think we're really happy. When we were talking about it last spring when, when we started hashing things out, we knew that Tyree couldn't carry, you know, no one's tuning in to watch the David Tyree show. Yeah, I mean, this is an important calculation in our business. Well, and the and series the, ambition is to explore uh, the uh, play and the moment in time. And, right? and that it's too. not a biographical, it's not right. a football. This right. isn't David right. Tyree, a football, football life. life. Right. right. So, you know, first and foremost, we wanted to dive deep as far as we could on the play itself. But the more that we, from every angle that we looked at it, we said, David Tyree is the central you know, he's the man who made this catch. He sort of came like a bolt out of the blue to the world. Nobody knew who he was. And we figured that since he doesn't have this star power draw, why not let the people who were impacted the most by this play on the Giants, Eli Manning, you know, he, he constantly lived in the shadow of his brother. Tom Coughlin was about to be fired from that team, if you know, as all of us Giant fans remember. And Michael Strahan, he almost retired before that season. So in the end, this guy that nobody knows about has this huge impact on three big figures on that team. And we said, if we can land them as interview subjects, let's do it. And let's get them together and let them well, that's the let thing. them talk it over. Yeah. We thought that would be a different twist, you know, rather than just sitting them down individually, we figured, hey. Once we got David on board in the beginning, we didn't know exactly what we were going to do with him. We just said, we've got plans for you. Would you be willing to be, you know, a, a participant? And when he gave us the green light, then we had the freedom to to explore a little bit and, and experiment and do what we wanted to do. And it ended up being, you know, sitting him down with those three big figures. I think it also helps when you're making one of these films and you're approaching Eli Manning and Michael Strahan for the 500th time to talk about the helmet catch to say, no, we're not just going to come by and interview you for half an hour. We're going to bring David Tyree to you and you're going to sit with him. And, you know, Eli, you're going to watch the, the coach's tape with them and, and break it down. I think those three stars, they would have done the show if it had been a standard talking head documentary. You know, it's the 10th anniversary of the helmet catch. I think they would have sat down. Right. But when you bring David Tyree into the mix, a person that I think it shows up in the show, each of these three stars have a genuine love for, then that opens up a whole new world of it, 
brings out it brings out their a truer self from all these stars. You can tell how much Michael Strahan loves, you know, David Tyree is one of his boys. You can tell the almost fatherly relationship between David Tyree and Coach Coughlin and, um, you know, Eli Manning. I mean, you don't get a chance to break down film or, or joke around with Eli Manning all that often, and he's doing that in this show. So I think David Tyree and the genuine love that all of our three stars have for him really unlocked a world of possibilities for this film. Yeah, it's great. It's great to see stars in a different light and to give them an opportunity to sh- put a different side of themselves on display than just, you know, an interview where they're going to be asked some questions and they're going to get here. They get a chance to interact with someone they really care about. Yep. And it comes through. Ryan and I were saying after we did the, the Coughlin shoot, that was late summer, early, mm-hmm. like early September. I said, I haven't seen Coughlin smile that much in my presence ever, you know, because he's just so serious. I mean, but after that interview, I said, who is this guy? He's so comfortable with David Tyree. He's smiling. He's joking. He's relaxed. And he, this was, I mean, you know, obviously he's the the head of the Jackson, Jacksonville Jaguars now. So he spends most of his time in Florida, which made it a real challenge to put this shoot together. So he, you know, every September he comes up for the J Fund, his charity uh, annual event. And he took time out of his day on the day of the, the main event, the charity event, to come do this with David. And that's how much he cares about David, that he on this day of all days where he fly, he's flying into New York to do his huge charity event, he's spending time with David Tyree to, to do this interview. I mean, that says a lot about how he feels about David Tyree. Last point I have, endings are, are hard. Whether you're going to write a great line, you're going to find that perfect interview bite, whether you're going to come up with something really really unusual. Um, I thought the ending of this film, The Last Bite by Tyree, was perfect because it's exactly what this, what we had just, the journey we had just been on led us to, to that understanding that, that then he articulates perfectly. Let's listen to that. It wasn't about me, and I don't think it ever was. It was all about a very personal encounter that I've been living with God. And it revealed itself on, on, on the NFL's greatest stage. I think that's what makes it so glorious. And I have the joy of telling that story for the rest of my life. That bite captures exactly what that hour of uh, television is about in one bite. It's perfect. Did you know when you heard him say that, that's, that's the ending? How did you arrive at that? His interview, sit-down interview, it was supposed to be, what, an hour hour and 15 maybe an hour and a half and it went three hours yeah it was almost like three hours so we couldn't believe the stuff we were getting and when we went into it we said this is sort of a confessional this is your one chance to sit down you're in the spotlight just spill your guts and and he did and he's he's a very good speaker you can tell that he he goes around and he's such a spiritual guy he shares his faith with other people that's his job he helps people and I'm not saying he was like a preacher, but there were times where he was speaking and it, I felt like almost like he was delivering a sermon in a way. But I, I don't know. That's that's how I felt as as the interview was going. I don't know what, what you what you sensed, Ryan. But if there's such a thing, it, it wasn't a preachy sermon. 
Right. Was, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's David Tyree. He's like, you know, he's religious, but he's not in your face turn yeah. off. You know what I mean? And it's, it's because that's who he is, as we've been saying this whole time. And uh, it's not a turn off. And, but yeah, I, th- I think we sensed that was toward the end of the interview. And it was like, wow, that's, you know, he gets it. He gets the whole story and he's not ashamed of it. Like he said, when we were talking to him on the phone, it, you know, it is what it is, and and that's what I believe. So, yeah, to answer your question, yes, when he said that, I, I had a pretty good idea in the back of my mind that, yeah, that would be a good way yeah, to end he, the film. He brought us home. I mean, like, that, yeah. that bite brings us home. It was funny. We were recording the narration for this show with uh, NFL Films' favorite narrator, Morgan Spector, and uh, we got to the end of the script, and it's like a very sort of, you know, it's not an ending line of script. It was, I, I don't remember the line of script, but it's a very sort of mundane line of script. And I was like, really? That That's it? That's the end of the show? And it's because David Tyree just knew how to, he knew how to land the plane, basically. Yeah, yeah that's nice when they do that for you. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. You have the central character. He makes this incredible thing happen. He also happens to be extremely sincere and candid. It's kind of like just get out of the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. basically and, that's what it is. And get he's under and he's gone on this incredible personal journey that has landed him at a place where he's able to not only tell the story of his of of his life and everything that happened to him, but he's got big picture perspective on it. Like the idea that uh, you know, I I have the joy of telling this story for the rest of my life, which is exactly what you just did over the last hour. There's just something like an acknowledgement that this is going to go on and on and he's going to do it for the next 50 years and it's never going to stop being great. He he appreciates to his core that he got to do that and what it meant for his life and what the opportunities are that it gave him. Yeah, and I and he also, you know, he's he says that 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 play doesn't define who he is. He's I've gone on to do other things in my life. It's I'm appreciative and I I sit back and I I like the adulation. I like when people bring it up. I don't mind it. It's just it's just another piece of his story that, you know, that's still being written as as we speak. I, but it, but it's always going to be there. I don't know how you deal with that as a I don't know how I would deal with that if yeah. I made a play like it. Think about that. Imagine being a person who had a moment that is so transcendent. That can ruin that, you. That yeah. could ruin you for the rest of your life. You're like that. You could say to yourself, "That's it. I'm never getting better than that." I mean, but now he is literally the guy on the New York in the New York Giants organization whose job it is to work with players and help them. These young, 23, 24, 25 year old guys who, as he said, are often broken, just trying to figure out how to live in the world. And now he's the guy who works with them. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible. An incredible journey for for a guy who who gave us one of the truly uh, great moments in the history of football and American sports. It was great. I was there. It was great. I mean, oh, you were there. Yeah. What was that like? I, it, you know, did you even realize what the heck was going on? So you know, it's interesting, and you know, I tried to figure out a way to put this perspective in the film, and you know, it's I don't think it's something that a lot of people are interested talking about, but it's very much a play for TV. So, like, I was in the sort of front front half of the upper deck, and the helmet catch was coming toward me, and it happened so fast, and it was so far away, and, like, what happened? Like, did did Rodney intercept it? Obviously, they're going to replay this, and, you know, neither of those things happened. So it was almost like—and and 
you know, the action of the game just kept going. So the goosebumps moment in the stands was uh, Plaxico Burris's game-winning touchdown. You know, especially you know, as a Giants fan, I'd I'd always watched Eli have trouble throwing a fade like that, and so, so Eli drops back, and you can tell because he kind of stops, and you can tell he's going to throw a fade, and you could feel everyone's head in the stadium just sort of like go from left to right, almost you know like like rubbernecking or something. And Plaxico Burris is standing there in the end zone. I'm still getting goosebumps talking about this. Plaxico Burris is alone in the end zone. He catches the the ball for the go-ahead touchdown in the Super Bowl. And the place erupts. And I'm sorry, I don't want to make this about my personal Super Bowl recollection. But, like, the stadium erupts. And as it quiets down, like, the Patriots fans have literally disappeared. Like, we sat next to a Patriots fan who, like, as the game wasn't going the way they thought it would started chanting bad things about the Yankees. <laughs> and like I I think I we looked to our we looked to our uh, right all of a sudden and like they had just disappeared. So like they had they had fled the scene of the crime and it was just it was just the most amazing night. So it's almost my question we sometimes we talk to players and we ask them and they're playing the game. So not only do they have to keep going but they don't have the image that we have whether it's on TV or whatever or from the stands. So they don't see the play until much later. When did you first see the helmet catch play. I mean, did you see it later that night? Was it hours later? Was it ten minutes after the game? And like, could you even? You just won the Super Bowl, and then here was this like other reveal that that you didn't even know had gone on. I feel like I was vaguely aware that he caught it with his helmet, but I don't remember the first time. I, you know, we got back to our hotel room really late, just like David Tyree. You know, he says this. Uh, I don't think it made the film, but he says, you know, it wasn't until much later that he saw the highlights and. You know, I think we got to our hotel room late. We went to In and Out Burger after the game. As you know, we oh, finally got out of the the University of Phoenix um, parking lot. Animal style. Gotta go remember. animal style. They the, these poor these poor kids were overwhelmed though. I don't think they expected <laughs> the post Super Bowl crush. So we got in and out. Went back to our ho- you know hotel in Scottsdale, and I think I watched highlights and fell asleep. And we had to get up for an early flight the next day. That's like winning the game wait, twice. So wait, wait, <laughs> what? Getting winning the game and getting in and out burger? Oh, yeah, three times. Patrick, <laughs> he didn't do it so, animal style though. Yeah, so he didn't. He didn't, to do animal yeah, he didn't style. win. Completely. So wait, wait. Because here's what I'm thinking about listening to your story. You might have been the first person who has ever justified or contextualized Joe Buck's famously unemotional call. Oh, can we of the talk play. about that? Because, yeah, l- first of all, let's listen to Joe Buck's call. Pressure from Thomas off the edge. Eli Manning stays on his feet, airs it out down the field. It is caught by Tyree. Inside the 25 and a timeout taken. Okay, so that call actually does not appear in the film. You used every other radio call. You didn't use the Buck call. Well, here's an interesting story. We tried to get Buck to – we were going to give him a redo as part of the show – this was back what, like in April, May, mm-hmm. and we said, "All right, to the folks that make the uh, the connections to to book our interviews, we want to give him a second chance to re you know redo the play. We we're going to give him a monitor, and a <laughs> microphone, and we we're going to we were going to have him redo it a second chance, but he he declined. He, he but, but we thought he might do it because you know he does have a sense of humor. You know, 
But but the way you describe it, Ryan, is that he, in the stadium itself, it went it happened so quickly, and you didn't know what happened. It was so hard to tell if he actually caught the ball. That that's why Buck Buck was so flat on the call, and I remember thinking like he's is he trying to do summer all like what what's he doing? That's here? why we didn't use it. You know, yeah. we, it nobody re- uses yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's famously a weird yeah. call. It, it, well, in doing the research for our pitch to to Joe, we found an interview. I mean, he's talked about it in the past, and he said, "Well, listen, it happened so fast, we couldn't tell if it was a good catch or not." I'm not, you know, I don't want to put words in Joe Buck's mouth. He said he didn't want to go over the top in case, you know, that it's play a, gets called back. It wasn't good, anything like that, because that's worse. Right. If you if you call that the greatest play in Super Bowl history, and it turns out it gets called back, like that, that's worse probably than what he did. So, I, I'm going to defend Joe Buck. Okay. Well, here's why, because I remember. Although you say it was a play for TV, and it, I could understand, yes, more than being in the stands, I kind of remember, to contrast, when Diggs caught the Minneapolis miracle, I was screaming immediately because of the clarity of it. Oh, yeah. But I don't think the helmet catch was that clear even at home. It was still in the middle of the drive. It wasn't a touchdown, and they had to kind of run down the field. The clock was still ticking down. There still was a lot going on. Now, I'm sure they showed a replay. I'm sure I saw it, but... They hadn't won the game yet. They were still losing. So maybe it was the part of me that was going, it doesn't mean anything until they win the game. But I don't remember, I don't remember leaping and and going nuts. Uh, the way. But what, here's what gives the lie to that. We we heard the other three calls. Was it Papa Marv Albert? I think did the the, the Westwood yeah, one version, Westwood one. Mm-hmm. and then and then the, the Patriots guy at that point, um, the older Gil Santos G- and Gino yeah. Capaletti. Yes, G- okay, Gil and Gino. Gino. Yeah. So those three calls were all all rose to the occasion a little bit more than Bucks did, even though. But 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 as Ryan has described, maybe history should give Buck a, a little bit of a pass on this one because it is an odd play that you do have to watch again to realize the multiple layers of insanity that led to the catch. I mean, it just start, the first half of the play itself with Eli eluding three or four sacks is, is an incredible moment. Franco-esque, would you say, Cos? How does it compare to the Immaculate Reception? Let's get right down to it. This isn't, Paul, this is a giant show. We're not going to... We're going to stay away from the Rooney end of the spectrum no, today. We, we're, we're, we're going 30,000 uh, feet now. Uh, NFL history. 30, Plays 000. with names. I I would still put uh, the Immaculate... Well, it's hard because you almost need a separate category for Super Bowl plays. It's not fair to put the Super Bowl plays in the same category. But, you know, as far as the catch and the Immaculate Reception, the Music City Miracle, now the Minneapolis Miracle... Those plays all end in touchdowns. This play is not a touchdown, which is a very interesting caveat. It doesn't, there is not a finality about it. As Ryan said, if you're in the stadium, it doesn't. Now, one year later, now if we want to go to, if we want to stay in in the Super Bowl category, I I will give you one year later the James Harrison interception return. Oh, I thought you were going to San Antonio. Yeah. Two plays in that game. <laughs> Harrison's crazier than the, the San Antonio. The San Antonio play was incredible. The James Harrison play, I think, bar none, 
is the greatest play in Super Bowl history. It it is the the it is a like a three act play in and of itself. And the tension of the clock has run out. Is this guy going to complete this hundred yard dash through a hundred bodies and get to the end zone and didn't score this a, touchdown? Didn't he get an illegal block though? The guy on the Steelers stepped out of bounds. I, I, shut, I remember. Shut your mouth. I remember. Shut, I remember, shut, I remember, I remember pointing mouth. that out. We can shut review. Your, I actually cut that. Shut part. your mouth, Luca Toro. There was no illegal block. <laughs> Lamar Woodley, the Cardinals player, turned his back. You can't oh, have an illegal okay, block okay. when the guy turns his back. It's it was not pure. Illegal. It was pure. It's not a legal block. It's a, <laughs> it was a beautifully, beautifully executed interception return. The greatest play. In Super Bowl history, just like the Giants didn't sure, hold on the helmet. I'm not sure Steve, right? The Giants never held on the. On the it was a clutch, as Sean clutch. Harris said, clutching. But I think as history goes on, the Harrison play probably gets the edge because it's just such a unique and ridiculous play. So as we sit here today, and this the, this this pod will premiere. You might listen to it before. Super Bowl 52, you might listen to it after Super Bowl 52. But in Super Bowl 52, James Harrison is going to be wearing a New England Patriots uniform. And I am almost certain that he is going to be heard from in that football game because he is always heard from when he takes the field. He's had a pretty good playoffs, right? He had the key sack on third down in the... uh, AFC Championship game against Jacksonville on the final drive. He's a pretty good player. He's a pretty good guy could, to have in the just game. Just a spare in, in Pittsburgh, could, but could, he's making plays in New England. Could have helped the could have helped the Steelers in that uh, game when they gave up forty five and 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 didn't sack uh, Blake Bortles at all. Like he could have helped a little. Just from a greatness of the game standpoint, he's a good he. When he's in the game, it makes everything better. I think. <laughs> You know, he's, well just, he's just James not, Harrison is there. Not things, right things now. Are... Not for Steelers fans, Ryan. No, I'm sorry, well, but it's, you know, it's a tough couple of weeks for Giants fans too. I agree with the principle. Having James Harrison in this whole in this thing makes it adds a nice extra ingredient and a and a little element of potential chaos that nobody. nobody you want him in your battle royal? <laughs> or, or... Yes, you do. <laughs> if there's an all-time NFL battle royal. James Harrison might be the favorite. Yeah, he might win it. He could take it. He might be. I mean, like, Butkus. There's, like, probably five guys. Jim Brown. Like, James Harrison is heading into the ring as as one of probably the five favorites. If you have an NFL Royal Rumble... Of all the players in the history of of the NFL, well, he he was in that article that that profile of him opened with him like tossing a rattlesnake all over <laughs> his his backyard fence, right? Like that, Jake the Snake Roberts. Like a Royal Rumble's got it. That's easy in comparison. Well, who would your top five wait, be, Cos? Oh boy, top five. What do, right. what is it? Who, NFL uh, history. Top of the head. Just so, it's hard. All right, so I've already gone too. I'm gonna go Buck. I'm putting Buckus and and Jim Brown in my in my top five. Those are the two bad, bad, bad men. Concrete Charlie. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going yeah. Charlie. L- I'm going LT. Oh. Going really angry LT. How about Reggie White? Who's beating up Reggie White? Singletary. No. Not no, the, no, doesn't make no. my top five. No. Singletary, he's like a fringe guy. <laughs> he's got the eyes, but I'm not sure he's stacking up to <laughs> He's to, like the manager. He doesn't like this kind of party. No. Gronk. No. No, he's not tough at all. Jack Tatum. Yeah. 
flying the through the air off the top Speaking rope. Speaking of safeties, would you, Ronnie Lott? Ronnie Lott? He'd lose his finger, get back in the ring. All right. <laughs> on All that right. note. On that note, we are going to move to part two of the mega podcast. Let's cleanse the palate with, with a nice piece of music, and then we will bring in the gambler. Uh, Ken Rogers, the director and producer of our other Giants-related epic new documentary, The Two Builds, the new 30 for 30, premiering on ESPN Super Bowl week. Guys, congratulations on the helmet catch. Everybody check it out. If you missed the premiere, it'll be on demand. It'll be uh, all over. I'm sure we'll replay it a million times, but... Tremendous work, guys. You really you, you, you made the helmet catch into, into a really memorable story about a special guy in David Tyree. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thank you. All right, folks. Go towel off if you're finishing up on the treadmill. We're not done. We're not done by a long shot. In the super double-decker episode of the NFL Films Podcast, we've got a treat for you now. We have the great Ken Rogers. Hello. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hi. The gambler making his first appearance on the NFL Films Podcast. You got to know when to hold him. Can we start there? Because I've never asked him this question uh, when did you become conscious that there was another Ken Rogers and that he was the gambler? And then, sub-question, when did you become the sub-gambler? Or maybe at this point, you're, he's the sub-gambler. Yeah. Uh, very early in childhood. Okay. Yeah. The real gambler, Kenny Rogers, was pretty popular when I was a kid. So I was born in uh, 74. So he was really pretty big. So I got it all the time as a kid. But I was, uh, you know... It was spelled differently. Mine's R-O-D-G. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood Mm -hmm. was big because my father was a realtor. So Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, he used to joke that was going to be his realty company. And then I got here to NFL Films, and it was my very first shoot. And Neil Zender, who demands that everyone has a nickname, that's just sort of one of his many quirks as a producer here, uh, we were on the way to the White House, of all places, to shoot the uh, Ravens ce- celebrating their Super Bowl victory. He said, what's your name? I said, Kenny Rogers. He said, no, you're the gambler. And that was it. I was the gambler, which made sense, of course. And uh, around these halls, that's what they call me. And uh, around these halls, if you have never heard of this Ken Rogers, Ken is the showrunner of... Hard Knocks since 2007. He is the showrunner with Paul on the timeline. He is the director of each of the three 30 for 30s that NFL Films has produced for ESPN. That would be Elway to Marino, The Four Falls of Buffalo, and Ken's latest and possibly uh, his masterpiece, the two bills. He also did, before we get to that, though, the, and that's what we're going to talk about today, he also did the, the premiere and most famous episode of, of A Football Life, uh, spent a season, the 2009 season, with Bill Belichick embedded 
with the Patriots, and that became the two-part seminal pilot episode of a football life. So Ken, Ken has been. I feel like this was my IMDb page. Yeah, you just got his his bio. Ken is somebody that Paul and I have worked with as closely as anyone here at NFL Films for a very long time, and uh, obviously someone who's very influential and was someone who is maybe closer to Steve Sable than anybody here uh, among the producers, Ken or Chris Barlow. So so Ken is a, a huge figure at NFL Films, and we're, and we're psyched to have him. The two Bills. Yeah. When's the premiere, Paulie? February 1st, 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Again, you'll see the 30 for 30 branding, but The Two Bills is the name of the show, directed by our own Ken Rogers. And the place I'd like to start, if I could, Kaz, and um, having just seen the cut in preparation for this podcast, like any creative work, at least in my opinion, uh, there's a simplicity. When I first watched the, The Two Bills, I'm like, this is in some ways very simple. It's two guys. They're sitting at a table. It's It's basically the story of their relationship. But of course, like also, like all great works of art or anything that's created, it, it's way more complicated than that. And so we're going to talk about the content and the story, but also there's 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 not really a simple road uh, that got to this show being produced. So we wanted to kind of start with the backstory uh, of of how we ended up at the two bills. And just context, just in case we haven't made it clear, this is a film about the relationship of Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. Which start there, I mean... When you say simple yet complicated, that's that's everything about the this the film in its final process or in its final um, uh, what it looks like to viewers. It's how the process of making the film was. It's what the shoot was like. It's what their relationship is. I mean, <laughs> when I think of their relationship. It's very simple. They they work together for 15 years. They're co-workers. And it's also very, very complicated. So everyone uh, wants to know, like, well, what what's their relationship like? And I asked Coach Belichick that the very first time I brought up this film. You know, I, I forget what I was in Foxborough for. I was inter- interviewing him for some reason. And I said, Coach, we should do a, a piece on you and Coach Parcells. And I, I asked him. He said, "Sure, yeah, I'd, I'd do that." And it was pretty quick. People, everyone asked me, "Oh, how hard was it to get him to agree?" He he said yes immediately because he he appreciates the history and and wants to pay homage to those who helped him. And I said, "Well, let me ask you, what's your relationship with him? Like, were you friends? Was he like a big brother to you? Were you coworkers?" And he looked at me and said, "I don't think he and I could tell you what our relationship is." And that right there, for me, was the film from the very start. Like, look, these two guys can't define their relationship. And in many ways, from the start, I thought about you two guys. And we've talked about this a little bit, but so we're all coworkers, like Belichick and Parcells. Uh, I consider you guys friends, but we're also a little bit of competitors in that we push each other to, to make better films than each other to to be partners together on different films and to push each other uh, as partners but yet you know we don't hang out outside of work a lot you know uh, we don't go on vacations together 
But at the same time, I think I know more about you guys and you guys know more about me than a lot of my friends that, quote, friends that I've spent my childhood with and all know about me now on a daily basis. So in many ways, I'm closer to you. Uh, do I love you guys? Yeah. Do we tell each other we love each other very often? No. And that's like Parcells and Belichick. I think everyone has, when you work with people closely, especially in stressful environments like filmmaking or like football, you have these relationships that are they're closer than friendships. They're closer than family sometimes. And that's what Belichick and Parcells have. It's very simple, but it's also very complicated. Uh, and that's where the whole film came from, was this realization when Belichick said, I don't think we, I could define our relationship. I, I said, oh, I just want you two to sit down then and witness this. I want you to just sit there and we'll be at the table and I want to see you two work this out together. You don't just call Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells and say, hey guys, let's uh, meet in the locker room at Giants Stadium on Sunday and we'll, we'll, we'll have a chat. I'll bring a couple cameras and a table. You guys can sit there and, and then we'll see what happens. You, this happens because of many years of relationship building, trust building. And, and so, you know, the aforementioned Two episodes of a football life with Belichick happened after many years. Why don't you just take us back and give us a thumbnail of how you could even get to the point where you could say to Bill Belichick, we should do something about you and Parcells. Yeah, the story started with you already like in his office chatting with him. Yeah, like, not, which, which not many people do. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it goes back to Steve Sable, of course. You know, uh, I think Sable and Belichick had a relationship that – started back in the 70s when they were both, you know, hanging out on sidelines. They sat next together at owners' meetings every year. And they were both sort of the outsiders who worked in the NFL but saw things in this pure artistic sports purity way. You know, Belichick only cared about winning football. Sable only cared about making great films. They hated the political side of the league. They, they didn't want to get involved in meetings and votes and marketing and all that stuff. They, they just wanted to work at the very highest level in their art form, X's and O's coaching and filmmaking. So they saw really, I think, um, kinship between each other. Uh, and it stayed that way uh, forever. But, you know, Coach Belichick wasn't always Coach Belichick. So when I arrived here at NFL Films in 01, I was, uh, you know, the, the low man on the totem pole. And uh, our boss at the time, Jim Jordan, uh, assigned me to a highlight film, which all producers are assigned to uh, on a yearly basis to follow a team and, you know, make their highlight film for the year. And since I was low man on the totem pole, he gave me a team – that was expected to be the worst team in the league that year, the 2001 New England Patriots. So, you know, I was bummed. I was like, oh, the 01 Patriots, this is going to be terrible. Uh, and I still remember I watched the first first game I ever watched um, as a New England Patriot sort of uh, producer. Um, I said, well, at least they have a good quarterback, Drew Bledsoe. <laughs> and then 
Drew Bledsoe gets hit by Mo Lewis and he goes down and this kid, Tom Brady, comes in and I'm thinking, oh my God, I have the worst team. You know, I got now now I don't even have a quarterback. I got Tom Brady. Who's that? Uh, and the rest is history. So I, you know, I started following them as, as their highlight producer and going up and interviewing Coach Belichick and, and forming a relationship with him and the football staff. Uh, and through spending a lot of time with Steve and Coach Belichick together, I sort of saw their relationship and became a proxy, I think, for NFL films in many ways, in many ways, and sort of took on. The role of Steve, once Steve passed away, certainly in the eyes of Coach Belichick, is as the future of NFL films. And like we're we're here, even though Steve's gone, and we still believe in the same things. We still believe in uh, the purity of the filmmaking, and we're not going to get wrapped up in the politics of stuff. We just want to make a great film about you, and who cares about the other stuff? And um, you know, when when we pitched a football life on him, it was purely look, you're you're going to go down as an incredible coach. We want to see what it what it's like to be on the sideline with you for an entire season. Let's do it, and he agreed pretty quickly, uh, and he agreed pretty quickly to this because he understands that this is part of his story, and he wanted to pay homage to Parcel. So, I you know I. I lucked into it. I lucked into this whole relationship with the with the Patriots and Coach Belichick, and I thought it would end around '04. I remember in '04 after they won their third Super Bowl, and you know '05 they didn't they didn't go back. I was thinking, well, man, I got lucky. I got a team that won three Super Bowls. You know, how do, not many people get to follow a team that win three Super Bowls, and you know now I'll move on, and you know my career will go wherever it goes and I'll follow whoever I follow and you know I'm on to the next chapter of my football uh, producing career and you know 14 years later I'm still following Bill Belichick and the Patriots we're all still telling the same <laughs> dang story <laughs> I can't get away from them and it's okay and it just keeps getting better and you know I it's such deja vu for me because in 04 you know I went to the Super Bowl to watch the Patriots play the Eagles and I'm thinking to myself, uh, having grown up here outside of Philadelphia and been an Eagles fan, I'm like, man, I, I, I can't not cheer for the Eagles because I'm sort of an Eagles fan. But, I, man, I, I can't imagine Belichick not winning. And here I am 13 years later, and I'm going back to the Super Bowl to watch Belichick coach against the Eagles. And I'm thinking, man, I really wish the Eagles could win a Super Bowl, but... I can't imagine Belichick losing the Super Bowl against the Eagles. And, and, um, he's, and he's trying to win his third in four years third and four with, years. with two coordinators who are about to leave. This dynasty is like a cosmic force that just goes around the sun and comes back. It's like a Halley's it's, Comet. It's, it's come back second, around. It's on its second revolution yeah. around the— So, uh, it's, so <laughs> 13 years from now, I'm going to be you know, <laughs> right. at the Super Bowl. I think I'm in some sort of twilight zone. <laughs> it's, um, it's unreal. But, but among— it's it's proven to be an incredibly fruitful relationship, not just for your career, not just for Bill Belichick, to have someone uh, of your caliber be able to document his career the way you have. It's been great for NFL films. We've gotten so much unbelievable content out of it and got so much content that we've been able to share with the world so that football fans have been able to get a glimpse into this really mysterious 
persona as even while he's been coaching, which is has been a gift because and it was the same with Lombardi had a great relationship with the Sables and allowed them to to shoot the 1967 season, his last season with the Packers because he trusted the Sables. And, you know, like you said, this all started with Steve and, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to document Belichick's career as it has unfolded. And Ken calls it luck, but he really um, doesn't give himself adequate credit. I mean, luck in this case is the residue of design, of of work, of effort, of uh, not just coming up with ideas and pitching shows and producing them, but just being there as a representative, like you said, as a proxy of films uh, to tell these stories. And I think the rest of us have benefited from it. I know other producers have, I think, seen that as an example and said, you know what, I need to have a good relationship with this PR director or this team or this coach if I have the opportunity to do a shoot with them because that's how when you do come up with an idea or one of your colleagues here comes up with an idea and the, the hardest part is making that phone call, we're that much further ahead. So I think it's been an advantage for all of us to sort of benefit well, from seeing that unfold. Yeah, the way this business works is like all businesses. We don't get to just call up teams and say, we're going to do a documentary about you and we're going to need all access. It, it, It's built through years of, of, of trust and teams understanding what we're trying to accomplish and, and, and being willing to give us give us the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, what so you just said that Lombardi didn't do it for NFL films. He did it for the Sables. You know, and I don't think necessarily Coach Belichick says yes to NFL films. You know, he said yes to Steve Sable, and I think he says yes to me because he trusts trusts me as a representative of NFL films. Now, in this instance, you did not have the personal relationship with Bill Parcells that mm -hmm. you have with Belichick. So how, how did he re respond to the initial ask? You know, he was very deferring to Coach Belichick. Um, he, What's funny is they're both very respectful of the other one. Um, and it showed very much so in the ask on Parcells' side. When we approached Coach Parcells, his response was very much, if Coach Belichick wants to do it, I'll do it. But I'm not going to ask Coach Belichick to do it on my behalf. Like I'll do whatever Bill wants to do. It's hard to say Bill because they're both Bills. Mm -hmm. You start telling stories and it gets all mixed up. But Parcell said, look, if Belichick wants to do it, I'll do it. But if he doesn't want to do it, you're not getting me to help convince him. Like, I, I'm not going to be part of it. Uh, so he, he, he played second fiddle very willingly and said, look, Belichick's the bigger name. Not in the, he didn't say this, but in, in his actions, he, he was like, look, Belichick's the bigger name. If, if he wants to do it, I'll do it. And that was, that was kind of surprising to me. And then in the actual interview, it was surprising that Belichick really showed a deference to Parcells and was like, no, I, you know, I learned everything from Parcells. And, and he, he almost took this position that, well, no, I'm not the greatest coach of all time. I, Bill was my boss, and you know I learned the big picture from Bill, and I owe everything to Bill. And I was like, wow, God, these guys both really respect each other, and I was shocked by that. Two things I, I'd like to listen to. The marketing of the film, we created a trailer. Uh, the editor, your, your partner editing, Emily Leitner, right, produced this trailer that ends with the idea that these two are going to sit down together. Let's listen to the trailer. 
he's a guy I can talk to, and he's always been more than uh, than Camden with me. I better tell him that we alert for the hurry up. We got it, Bill. We've already been over. He's a very exciting person to work with. Well, Bill, give it to him again. Bill, give it to him again. Bill and Bill learned from one another. They both knew their stuff. The Giants have accomplished something that many people thought they would never see. Super Bowl 25. Belichick should have been our next head coach. You know, y'all should have worked that out. Bill Belichick was named assistant coach with New England. The move reunites Belichick with Bill Parcells. You know, it just blew my mind, to be honest, that Bill had taken this job with the Jets. There were crazy things with the Jets on the way in, and on the way out, it was crazy again. I'm stepping down. Bill Belichick immediately ascends to the head coach of the Jets. Um, I've decided to resign as the head coach of the New York Jets. The thing you got to know is this family is dysfunctional. Like, you don't get them together together in the same room. Everyone ready? Are the Bills ready? I'm ready. Ready. All right. That's cool to end a trailer at the beginning. Yeah, that was not, you, you know, that, that was like, that's a great example of sometimes you figure things out while you're editing it. You guys didn't sit down and say, oh, here's what, here's what we should do, right? No, that uh, it's all Emily Leitner. You know, that was one of those things I said, uh, you know, by oh, the trailer, um, you know, I was busy in the big picture sort of trying to figure out the film in which direction the film was going to go. Um, and still, still doing interviews and dealing with political stuff and, and just big picture stuff with the film. And I said, Emily, why don't you take a crack at the trailer? You know, it's due months and months before the film is due. And I expected what I would have started with, which is this big get of, we got Parcells and Belichick to sit together, make the whole trailer about them sitting there together and show the best parts of them talking together and let's show the show the juice of of what we got she did the exact opposite and teased that the fact that we got them together uh and it worked brilliantly and first time i saw it i thought oh my god that is that's a teaser that's a trail that makes me want to watch the film more than giving away what the film is uh, it, it, it was brilliant. The other thing you, you hit on right away in the first five minutes of the film, before the title sequence, is what you, what you talked about earlier. What is their relationship? And this is done as they're driving in to, to Giant Stadium. And I want to listen to a little bit of that as you actually ask Bill Belichick, what is, what is this relationship? What do you consider him? You know, friend, mentor, competitor, um, enemy, competitor. Yeah. So, so that's you in the car asking the questions of Belichick. That's me in the car with Belichick, uh, and Paul was in the car with Parcells. Mm -hmm. So he was there as an additional director that day. Good, yeah. good. Good job by Paul asking Parcells the same questions we went over ahead of time, what to ask them. Because I wanted to set the tone ahead of time, this mystery of what the what the relationship was. So I I wanted I was hoping they would answer the way they did, which is 
not really conclusively. Like, oh, I'm not sure what the relationship is. Paul, how was Parcells on that ride? Uh, he was, it's kind of like what Ken was saying. I, I don't want to use the word hemming and hawing, <laughs> but he sort of was, didn't want to be terribly decisive. He actually, he kind of, you know how he, he, he dealt with it. He kind of started giving me facts yeah. about how they met, sort of the chronology of knowing uh, Coach Belichick's father, Steve Belichick, who was a coach and scout at the Naval Academy for so long. Uh, and, he, and he sort of started going through the, the chronology of that and then didn't really get terribly emotional or reflective. I feel like every time by my memory when I tried to get him to sort of probe him, he didn't he mm-hmm. didn't take the bait. Um, and I think over the years, I mean, the famous Parcells bites are the demonstrations of his passion. But I think because, as you know, having watched Parcells closely over the years, I've, I feel like I've seen him evolve to the point where he knows how to sort of speak with body language and with non-words and pauses and won't give you... There's even a point where he answered one of your questions where he says to you in the film, well, I'm not going to use the word you use. Like, he, yeah. he, he's very careful in how he speaks. And Belichick in, in the car was like he is in press conferences. I mean, he was... I asked him a question, and it was it, it was a tough question to ask. What Did you consider him an enemy? And... Instead of saying, no, I didn't consider him an enemy, you know, <laughs> which oh, would great. be the it's easy great. way it's to, great. to say it, he he just answered it in a way that's, uh, it says everything, which is kind of, I mean, he. it's like he said, kind of, but I'm not going to tell you it, you know, like, yeah, kind of. There's, there's that pregnant pause. But no, competitor. And the way he says it is, didn't you hear me? I said competitor. And I chose that word purposefully. Let me repeat it for you because I said it and you should have accepted it the first time. And that's the unspoken way he answers me. And, you know, I think that's um, on purpose. It's, you know, he could have just answered the question I asked him, an enemy, and he could have said, no, not an enemy. Did you know it was going to be the opening sequence, the, the car ride? I mean, you knew you were going to do the shoot. Did you know that was going to be the, the open? Yeah, you know, I knew I didn't have much time with him. You know, it, it took two and a half, almost three years to just get them scheduled together. They both agreed to do the film, but then just getting them scheduled was so hard. They're both pretty busy. Uh, they both don't like to make plans. It's not like they were jumping for joy to sit down together on, you know, in front of the camera it's never it's only happened one other time in their career together so which is in which is in the film by the way and it's it's it's, might be my favorite archival element among a litany of amazing archival elements when they sit down together when when parcells has retired and now belichick's a first year coach in cleveland it's great the craziest part about that is we had never seen it had no idea about it um, we we knew that it existed because they both told us we had only done this one other time, and it was in 91. Looked for the tape, and when we finally found it, it was long after we shot our interview. We put it in, and we look at it, and they're sitting the same exact way that they sat in our interview. Belichick on the left, Parcells on the right, about the same distance apart, at the same angle, and the close-ups look exactly the same and we're like, oh, my God, it was meant to be. So so let's get into that now. The setting of the film and how you chose 
to seat them and what you chose to put around them. Take us through that process and where you landed. Um, Yeah, this was an... It looks very simple, and it was actually very complicated, as Paul started uh, started our conversation with. We actually experimented with a bunch of different tables, uh, the size of the table and the distance apart Bill and Bill would be from each other and how far apart I should be as the interviewer from them. Because we started to come up with this geometry of intimacy – is what we sort of called it. And if you put the bills too close to each other, then they would only look across the table at me, and they would never look sideways. They would never turn their head and look at each other. You see that in double interviews a lot on the news when you know one person sits at the end of a, I guess, I don't even know my geometry, at the end of a long triangle, whatever you call that. Isosceles. Isosceles. I think think it might be. I don't know. All right, let's not get off track. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They would look at the long end of the triangle and never look at each other. We didn't want that. That, I mean, they're they're having a conversation too. Uh, At the same point, if they were facing each other too much and we tried to force intimacy and have them look at each other, and at one point we were going to put my face in monitors over their shoulders, over each, each other's shoulders to force them to look at each other more, it would have been uncomfortable for them. And we tried to look at that and we thought, oh, God, we're forcing two guys that aren't really all that comfortable in front of the camera to like look in each other's face lovingly. That's not going to work. And we found this geometry that was pretty much an equilateral triangle where we put my face in the Interatron, invented by Errol Morris, of course, and used on a lot of films now, at the end of the, the the table, equidistant from Parcells and Belichick, and we tested a bunch where we saw would they be equally comfortable looking at each other and me. And you can see in the wide shot that they often look back and forth between myself in the camera and each other. And that allows the audience to feel like they're at the table, but it also allowed them to comfortably look back and forth. So what that, what that ended up giving us were these close-ups of Bill and Bill watching the other Bill talk, which wouldn't have happened if we didn't have this geometry right. And we, we didn't know we had that. And, Paul, you were there. We had this – there was this feeling in the room when we did the interview of like, oh, my God, this is – there's this feeling there that they're working things out together. There's just this unspoken tension and uh, – It was a couple's therapy. It really, that, that's, that's what, what it, it felt like. It fun. looked like you were watching in so many rom-coms. Where The one that comes to mind is, um, is it When Harry Met Sally? And, yeah. And Rob yeah. Reiner uses the interstitials of the couples of different ages sitting right. – and they're on a couch. Right. But it was that type of vibe to me. Like you said, like these two people who – they, they had admiration, they had respect, but they had so much deference for each other that it was almost like this joust of mm-hmm. of how should I sit, how should I lean. Like, it was it was fascinating. Yeah, they looked at each other the whole time. Like they were they were measuring each other's responses. What's he gonna say? What's he gonna say? Even the side angles on the dollies, you know, revealed Parcells sort of rubbing his leg nervously and and 
well, you know, it, you could just tell, uh, you know, Belichick once in a while is like looking at the camera like, you know, is this thing on? Should I be? It was great. So how did you solve for we've got this tension? Yeah. What's the best way to show them watching each other and, and working this out? So we got back and we started watching the different angles and we were more fascinated by the person listening, particularly our boss, Pat Kelleher, just wanted to watch the person listening more than the person talking. He'd come in my office and he'd, we'd, I'd, he'd say, show that clip where uh, so-and-so, you know, Belichick said this. And I'd start playing it. He goes, no, no, but I want to see what Parcells was, was doing while he answers. And it was. It was fascinating to just see their facial expressions. Um, and so I, I started thinking about split screen, which is something that Steve Sable didn't really enjoy. Okay, he hated it. It was not, not a filmmaking technique he, he liked. And, and I started doing research on how it was used. Um, you know, we had, we had a whole list of films in, in how it was used. And um, I wanted to find sort of like a proof of concept, like, hey, this is going to work and not feel like I'm trying too hard as a filmmaker because th th these guys are very simple. The shoot was very simple. The concept of the film is very simple. Uh, I've done complicated films like Elway to Marino where we recreate this entire big draft room. Uh, this wasn't that. This was two guys in an empty locker room purposefully because it's Belichick and Parcells. Don't, don't fancy it up. Don't mess it up with your filmmaking, Ken, is what I kept saying to myself. Don't, don't overthink it. Everyone's going to just want to watch because it's Belichick and Parcells. Don't mess it up with putting split screens in there, for God's sake. So I started watching, and a lot of split screens, you know, 500 Days of Summer or Grand Prix and all this stuff was, was to build this, like, action sequence or alternative viewpoints. And then I got back... I kept going backwards in the in the use of split screens, and I got back to um, 1958, and this is so this is so uh, Sable. Sable would be so proud of this story. <laughs> I got back to 1958, uh, and this movie, Indiscreet, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, and this was in the time of the production code forbidding men and women being shown in the same bed together. So in Indiscreet, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are on the phone in different bedrooms talking to each other. But it's shown in a split screen so that it appears they're in the same side bed, by side, side by side, cuddling each other. They sort of move in the same direction. They both reach their hand out as if they're holding hands together. And I saw this and I thought, this is this is what I'm trying to do, which is they are in the same room. They're not as close together, but if I put them together, it actually shows the intimacy that does exist in one frame, in one on one television. That closeness of them being that close to each other and watching each other as they talk exists emotionally. So I'm showing it on screen. And this sex comedy from 1958 nailed it for me, and I could just imagine Sable going... There you go. There, you know, Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, Steve, you know, Steve would have loved it. 
that was the reason why Belichick and Parcells are in split screen. You know how if you take a mirror and you put it next to an object and then that you could see its reflection and there's a point in the image where the lines kind of intersect with each other and it almost looks like you took something and folded it open, but it's connected. There are many shots in your film, as I was thinking about while you're describing, where it looks like, and because of the color of their shirts and the heights of their shoulders, it lines up in such a way that it was if you took one of their images and folded it open, like like Mad Magazine, and, and there's the other guy. Like, they really are literally connected. Yeah, and that was purposeful. A little bit in the in the post-production, the editing, we slid some shots but a lot of it wasn't. Like, I didn't ask them both to wear similar color shirts. You know, I, they kind of just lined up at the same height. Uh, it just all sort of worked out that way. And and there were some edits that we did uh, otherwise for just B-roll that worked out that way. I mean, oh, geez, that works perfect. You know, I don't, let's leave that, you know, where things just lined up perfectly side by side. And, and we just knew that it was all working. There's another element in the show, and... and... I won't describe all of it in case you hear this pod before you see the show, but there's scenes at the end of the show where they're, they're physically are together and hearing you talk about it, it makes me realize, I remember thinking these are awesome and I couldn't put my, put my finger on exactly why. And I think you just helped me figure it out. The tension you created in the split screens is sort of exploded by when they're together in the same space near the end of the show. And you see them interacting in a way where it's shared in the same image and I think there's, again, another brilliant execution of almost like teasing you, teasing you, teasing you and how you put these two characters together. And then at the end, you sort of undermine that with this these other little more wild scenes. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily planned for that, uh, but I did want to get some material that wasn't just the interview. So we said, oh, you know, what else are we going to do at Giant Stadium? Because this is by happenstance where they wanted to meet because it all worked out as schedule and location-wise for them to meet there. And, uh, I, you know, I wanted to take them up and have them look at the trophies, which is this great moment in the film because two of the trophies they won together and two of them, the Giants beat Coach Belichick and the Patriots. Um, so we took them up there and uh, I had thought that in this film and, and this three hours that we had them, that there was a possibility I would have to play mediator, that I would have to bring them together a little bit, that I'd have to cajole them to, you know, uh, go up to the suite and be together in that sort of situation, you know, with a camera on them. It's a little uncomfortable. And what happens when they leave that suite and I ask them to go to the Jets locker room is the ultimate example that they're bonded together against me. Like I was the outsider and they were united together the whole time. By, certainly by the end of the interview when we, when we leave and visually they're together, they're no longer in a split screen, they're, they're walking around uh, the stadium together they're they're together emotionally more than they've ever been and it's perfectly shown by them bonding against me and my request to go to the Jets locker room uh and to keep it was so natural uh it it was probably the first thing i knew was definitely going to make the film i just said oh well, that's making the film because it shows them more than any other clip where their relationship is today just it proves where they're at. And 
in terms of the big controversy of the film, the Jets' departure and resignation, it it closes it in that they don't want to go back there. Like physically, literally, they don't want to go back to that moment. They, they, they don't want to go back to the Jets' locker room. They don't want to revisit it anymore. They just want to leave. And it's perfect. Well, we can revisit it because that <laughs> moment in the film... The height, the most tense moment in the film is when these two are asked about the when they actually stop talking to each other. This is when Parcells suddenly resigns from the Jets because he knows, in part because he knows the Patriots are sniffing around Belichick and Parcells wants him to succeed him in New York. So Parcells suddenly resigns kicking in this clause, I guess, that makes Belichick the, the the Jets' new head coach, and things unfold from there, and they end up not talking to each other for, for a couple years. And so you finally get to this point in the interview, and you ask them about it, and Hank McElwee, our DP's camera, dies. Yes. Let's listen to that. Hold on a second. My camera just went out. So, Kenny, I think this really is symbolic of where this conversation's going right here. The camera drops out. Nobody really wants to hear about it. So this looks like the perfect segue to move on. I mean, I think if it was meant to be, camera wouldn't have given out. So put us in that moment. Um, you know, I wasn't too worried. I, I, I Come on. Really? Yeah, you. I wasn't. I wasn't in charge. Like I was there, but were you worried? I, if I if if I were you, if it was me and that was my shoot and that happened, because as much as you know, things are always going to go wrong when you do a shoot, no matter how much you plan it. Sometimes when they do, there's still there's still tension. I, I hope I would have held it together as well as you did. Well, but at the time, I thought it was just one camera, and I assumed that the, all the others were running. What I didn't know at the time is that everyone else stopped down and turned off their cameras uh, except one cameraman. Who kept their which camera on? It was Phil Gushu. Thank God for Phil. Who turned it off? The Belichick the, yes. from, from the Who right. Who turned it off? Everyone. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. I want names! <laughs> so everyone else, and because I, I think Hank said, all right, stop down. And everyone turned off. And one cameraman kept rolling, and Belichick responds the way he does of make you know joking with me, and I re th I remember thinking, oh, I'm glad I'm glad this happened because we got it on camera, and then realizing like driving home, oh my god, I think all the cameras turned off for that, oh crap, and like waiting for the film to be transferred and finally seeing one cameraman left. It on. should be noted, Hank McElway. Let's uh, just a little <laughs> extra co context here. Hank is NFL Films. He has been here. The legend. He he's is, he's I he's, just learned this. He's employee number 21. Employee number. He was Steve Sable's AC. He was his assistant cameraman when Steve Sable shot Dick Butkus's bloody knuckles and has been the head of the NFL Films camera department for, I think, the last 15 years and is retiring this February. And the last film he's going to be seen and featured in 
Yes, his camera Shuts going down. His camera he's gonna love me. Down. I don't think he knows. I love Hank. Well, <laughs> Hank is a is a he's he's a special guy, but I I guarantee you he didn't think you were gonna actually use the moment in the film. I, I you know I didn't think I was gonna use myself nearly as much as I did, and then I saw that the moments that were the best or the most genuine were myself. So. The moment where they refuse to go to the Jets locker room, the moment where the camera goes down and Belichick responds the way he does, the moment that I ask them if they've told each other they love each other. A narrator can't do any of those, right? Like a narrator can't say, and then they were asked to go to the Jets locker room. So you have to have me do those things. As a matter of fact, there is no narrator in this film. There's no narrator. And because those were f- one of the few times when you could have used the narrator to, to sort of express what, what was going on. We didn't really need a narrator. And I think a narrator would have separated you from being at that table. Because all of a sudden there would be an omniscient voice that would be telling you the story instead of you just sitting there. And if anyone was going to join the conversation, it would be me as proxy for the audience. And I just wanted to be the proxy for the audience. And I think at some point the audience is thinking, hey, I wonder if they love each other. Hey, have they told each other they loved each other? And so I ask for the audience. Well, that's um, a hell of a moment. Well, and you're, to your point before, the fact the embodiment of you versus a narrator gave them someone to stand shoulder to shoulder against. Like you could be the adversary in the room, whereas a narrator wouldn't have had that function to help generate those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I, to me, the moment that I'm proudest of is when I asked them if they've told each other they loved each other. And that's... Be, really because I had the guts to ask it. Uh, I'm, it, was, it was on the list from the start, and I know you saw the list of questions and, and other people saw the list of questions, and the most common response I got when I sent the questions around for feedback was, you're not really going to ask that, are you? If they love each other. <laughs> um, and, but I had to. I had to. It just felt to me like something that felt, felt like I, I had to get an answer. And to me, I got an answer that was evasive and said it all at the same time. And that's, it worked out perfectly because they said all that, they said it all the way they needed to say it. Parcells responded exactly the way Parcells should. I mean, it's a Parcells response. It's true. They held character and yet they were candid at the same time. Like, you learn things about them, but also they never gave up the guard at the same time throughout the whole process. The the other thing I would ask, now the structure of the film, sometimes we play with chronology, sometimes you want to start at the end, and this film's structure is very it's very straightforward. You, it, is, it is chronological. You didn't play a lot of tricks with, with, uh, with structure here, um, which seems like, because you know what, like another thing, like let's get out of the way of these two guys. Is, is that is that your thinking there? It was the thinking, and also um, born from the decision of not having a narrator, because we decided to cut the the pods of the film, uh, the different eras, and then say what order we're going to put them in. And when we cut the pods, we realized, wow, none of these need a narrator. 
You know, 1986 plays by itself. 1990 yep. plays by itself. The Jets thing plays by itself. We don't need a narrator, except if we put them out of order, we definitely need a narrator to take us from one to the other and explain why we're going from one to the other. Title cards wouldn't really explain how they connect. We'd have to create a narrative that takes us back and forth. And we decided uh, that now we're getting in the way. Now we're becoming the we're, we're we're injecting ourselves into the storyline instead of just letting them tell the story. Uh, and it just felt natural when you talk about Parcells and Belichick to start with well, how they meet. Um, and we get through it really quickly, and it's fun to see Bill Belichick with a mustache, you know, in 1980 and stuff like that early. But we get pretty quickly to, you know, them doing great things with the Giants. And, you know, the film and the visual style get more complicated as it goes. You know, I, I think the first block is sort of this foundation, and it's kind of the the... The split screens are, are fairly simplistic. Um, the the conversation between them is very respectful, and the storylines are not um, filled with tension. They're not, they're not fraught. And this is the Giants era yeah, when they're when they're both coming up and 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 making hay. These are the salad days. It's like celebratory. It's it's the foundation of their friendship. It's all good. And then as you start going through the film, the relationship starts getting more complicated. The film starts picking up this tension. Um, and by the end, the fifth block, the last block, it just opens with this tension at the absolute height where they're not talking. They're facing each other in a game. They're at complete odds with each other. Lawsuits are being uh, you know, cast against each other. Um, and then there's this break in the tension. And I don't think you could have felt that unless it built up throughout the re the whole film. You know, if you started with the tension and then went backwards, I think it wouldn't have, uh, you know, built like a, like a geyser and exploded by the end. It's a film about the story of a relationship. That's it. And it's at the same time simple and complicated. Have the principals watched the film, and have you gotten any feedback? Are they, are they pleased? Are they mad at you? Is Belichick never talking to you again? I don't know if either one of them... I don't know if Parcells has watched it. Parcells has been sent the film. Um, I know for a fact Belichick has not watched it. He's been busy. Yeah, and has no interest in watching it. I, I, I've been told. You know, um, you know I, I know people have watched it at the Patriots, and everyone thinks it's great. And I asked, has Coach watched it? And the answer was no. He, he, we gave it to him, and he doesn't care. Um, he, you know, he recognizes and understands his importance and place in history, but he really doesn't have an interest in, like, rolling around in it and, yeah. and like, enjoying no, it. <laughs> Yeah, you, you don't want to be self-conscious about things when you're still right in the middle of it, in which he is. Like, he's got to stay focused on the task. He is on to the next one. I mean, it's crazy. On to Philadelphia. Yeah. All right. February 1st, 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Uh, and then they rerun the hell out of that, right? I hope so. Yeah, let's hope. But the one thing is, 
there's some uh, graphics in there that say like Bill Belichick five time Super Bowl winner. Ah, uh, whoa! It's gonna have to be updated possibly. Right three after, day, three days, days after it premieres. Huh. So we might have to book some post time here to redo it. Sweet graphics, by the way. I like the graphics. Again, simple, clean. Simple, like, wow, clean. Wow, I'm a big fan. That's, that's Pat a, Kelleher inspired. I, I believe in the simple and the clean graphics. All right. Hit it. Ken Rogers, Ryan Kelly, Steve Lucatorto. David Tyree, what an episode. The big blue giant super show's over, Kaz. You were a great sport. Thanks for hanging in. This was this was awesome. I hope uh, I hope some of our audience hung in all the way to the end. I want to thank our engineer Mike Kennedy, our producer Rich Owens, all the fellow producers, Steve Lucatorto, Ryan Kelly, and Ken Rogers, who joined us here today on the NFL Films Podcast. Follow us on all our social accounts. NFL Films, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Go to YouTube and watch our stuff. Watch all our shows on TV. From the home of America's football movies in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, this has been the NFL Films Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Take care, everyone. <laughs>